so if I'm married on earth, am I married in heaven? I'm just curious what your perspective is on like the question of are we in the last days? Let's, so then what about an adult who may just not have experience like somebody to teach them about Jesus? What, what happens to them? Who or who will be the antichrist? Like, so you hear that Satan was a fallen angel. Is that like biblically backed? I know somebody whose entire reason why they're not a Christian is basically they can't buy into the fact that a God who's all loving would even send somebody to hell in the first place. What would you say to somebody who has that perspective? Yeah, I would say. Welcome to another episode of the Getting to the Truth podcast. If you've ever wanted to know what the Bible says about the details of heaven or hell, today's episode is for you. Today we have one of my favorite guests, Pastor Paul Piss III. Just to kind of get things started, right? If you were just to like, if, I, if somebody were to ask me today, what's heaven like? Mm -hmm. um, or what's hell like? Mm -hmm. I might, you know, throw some things out there like, all right, there's, you know, maybe there's golden roads. It's going to be perfect. There's going to, you know, there won't be any sin. But I couldn't really confidently answer that question, right? So I guess like for starters, if somebody were to ask you, what's heaven like? What would you say? Heaven is a real place. Heaven is the dwelling place of God where righteous angels and all the redeemed dwell as well. Para heaven is a paradise, a place of complete happiness and joy, particularly because God is there. If you can describe heaven and all you describe is the best food, and it basically sounds like a grand resort in, in the world, but you fail to mention Christ, mm. that's not a heaven at all. That's just a resort. And you're talking, so, because, okay, so you're saying that the, one of the biggest deals about heaven is the fact that God is there. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about God's there physically, because, I mean, because God technically is here with us now, right? The person of Christ, the Savior, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, lived 33 years on this earth in perfection, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, dying a substitute death on the cross for all those who would trust in him. The same Jesus who rose again on the third day, who ascended back to heaven, he is there at the right hand of the throne of his father. And he is there with his resurrected, glorified body, alive right now, interceding for us, reigning in glory. Jesus is there. Our faith will be made sight. We'll see him face to face and all will be made right. Just the fact that we say there's no sin. If you just practically think about that, we are in the presence of Christ himself in mm -hmm. God, our father, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And there's no sin. There's no sexual morality. There's no lying. There's no thievery. There's no deception. There's no falsehood. There's no false teaching. There's no rape, molestation. There's no robbery. There's no lying and crooked cops or businessmen. There's no sin. Just that alone, it's not just a theological statement. It is a reality that we can't even comprehend, but it's real and it's true. And when we get there, it will be paradise. There's no darkness. There's none of the influence of Satan. 
He cannot be there in a way that he's here on earth causing havoc and blinding people from the glory of the gospel. There's no sin. There's no suffering. There will be no sickness, no uh, division or or breaking up of relationships or animosity or lack of love or lack of forgiveness or any distance or anything of the sort. There's no suffering, no cancer, no sickness, no dying, no colds or flu. And Christ is there. We see him face to face. We are with our Savior and also all of the redeemed, spanning all the way back to Adam and Eve, those who believed in God, who believed in the gospel, who believed in Christ, are there in glory, in perfection. Just the fact that there's no more sin and we're in the presence of our Savior, if you just pause and practically think of that, it's not abstract. It's glorious. So you've gotten, so you've gotten to this point of being able to like speak about this place that you've technically never been to with such um excitement and like uh just knowing that this is what it so is it what how have you gotten to this point yeah so i think as a christian man we have been born again we are new we are children of god philippians 3 verse 20 says we are citizens of heaven it says we're sojourners that's like travelers mm-hmm. we're strangers on earth but citizens of heaven. It's where our citizenship is, man. And it's where our Savior is. It's where our Lord is. It's almost like when you're a child, your home is wherever your parents are. It's a physical place for sure, like your house. But if your parents aren't there, the house isn't the same. But if you're with your parents on vacation, that's home got to get back to my mom. I got to get back to my dad. When you get married, that's your spouse. They're your home. But in the deepest sense, our souls as Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ is our savior, our king, our mediator, our high priest, our friend that's closer than a brother. And he's our home. Where he is, is where we long to be Mm. as Christians. And Jesus himself in his final prayer before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, the last request Jesus gives in John 17, 24 is this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, so he's speaking about believers, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. One of Jesus' final requests in his prayer to his Father was that we would be with him to see his glory. Mm. The very fact that Jesus would pray for that, Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, who knows us fully and yet truly still loves us, who redeemed us, who knows us, who wants only what is eternally best for us, says that. The eternal good is being with him, seeing his glory. John Owen, who is a pastor, he's called a Puritan uh, from about the, seventh, about the 18th century. Uh, he wrote this book called The Glory of Christ before he was dying. And he wrote it based upon that verse. And he said, the greatest privilege of every Christian in this life and the next is to behold the glory of Christ by faith in this life 
and by sight in the next. Okay, so let, let's give like the timeline of like a life, right? So there's um, your spirit, incorrect, please interject whenever I'm wrong. There's your spirit before you become a human. Like people say, I didn't ask to be here. You know what I mean? Like you just are born. But before you're born, your spirit like existed. I'm not sure if that's true or not. There's nothing in the Bible to support our existence before our conception. God knew us, particularly believers. He foreknew us. He loved us before we were even made. But that's because God's eternal. He's outside of time. God is God. But the Bible, I don't know of anywhere in Scripture where it supports some type of existence before we were conceived in our mother's womb and, you know, the whole process, nine months, and then born into the world as okay. embodied souls. Very interesting. So then we, let's, let's scratch that part of the story then. So we, the story begins when you're born. When you're born, you're born physically. Conceived. On, conceived. And then born. Oh, oh conceived and then born. Mm -hmm. you're, you, you now have your, a spirit and you're living the physical earth experience. This is what we know. This is what we're both doing now. Yeah. And, and that's a good thing. Remember in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. And he created everything, and he said it was good. And when he created Adam and Eve, he created humanity, his image bearers who would have dominion over his creation. He created us for his glory and to enjoy him forever and to fellowship with him, but also to live on the earth as physical, embodied beings, embodied souls. So the physical is not bad. And in the heaven and hell conversation, we have to understand, especially when we get to talking about the new heavens and the new earth and our eternal resurrection, bodies aren't bad. Physical's not bad. We're not going to eternally exist as Casper, the friendly ghost. We will eternally exist in glorified, resurrected bodies. God created human beings who had bodies, and he said it was very good. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He didn't come as just some spirit man. He took on flesh, and he resurrected with a real physical body that he still has, even in this moment. So I wanted to pause you there because oftentimes in the heaven and hell kind of conversation, and when believers think about heaven, we only think of like this spiritual kind of ghostly thing, this eternal church service. But when it's all said and done in the new heavens and new earth, we will have glorified resurrected bodies like Jesus. And we will exist in a physical place where there's culture and ethnicities and nations and Jesus reigns as king. Mm. And that's important to think about because we can often just spiritualize stuff as if the body's bad, physical's bad, but God said from the start, it is good. So, okay. So then, so then, okay. So then when we die, so like, so I'm going to die mm -hmm. one day, sadly, you're going to die. Yeah. And when that does happen, we, what you're saying is we go to heaven as Christians or hell as non-believers mm -hmm. and, um, that's an intermediate state mm -hmm. in the sense that there's a new heaven and I don't know if it's a new hell that are coming once like the final day is here. Yeah. So, so it's an intermediate state because there's a resurrection coming, a resurrection for everyone. 
Christ rose again, defeating death, but believers will rise again and we will be given glorified, physical, resurrected bodies fit for eternal glory in the new heavens and new earth that God is make that 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 God will make. And unbelievers, you know, sadly, I say this with a heavy heart. I'm a gospel preacher because I want people to be saved. But unbelievers, Daniel 12 talks about, Revelation 20 through 22, if you read it, unbelievers will be resurrected as well. But they will have resurrected bodies fit for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. So I think you can think of there is a heaven where Christ is, where God the Father reigns and, and dwells and the angels and all the redeemed right now. Yeah. There, there is a heaven, but there is coming a day where, where God will bring about a new heavens and new earth. There is a hell right now, but there's coming a day where God will also bring about the lake of fire where the devil and demons and all those who perish without Christ will be and go. So although we're saying intermediate, it's just gonna, it's just really that it's gonna, like heaven and hell will take a new form yeah. when the final day comes. Yep. So I, so I, I, I guess I understand that. So then the, the form of heaven prior to the final form of heaven, is that physical or is that spiritual? Like, is that like a, a or do we not know? Yeah, so that's where the Bible has not spoken of in full to give us all those details and that's important to just say god doesn't have to tell us everything god tells us what we need to know and the, and the most important thing is the gospel it's the good news of jesus christ the good news that jesus came to save sinners and when you repent and believe upon the lord jesus when you receive and rest in him heaven is your home well, then, so but that intermediate heaven as we'll call it, where believers go now, when Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, that's heaven. When Paul says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, it's gain because believers go to heaven, the heaven that is right now. When Paul says my desire is to be with Christ for that's far better, that's the heaven that's right now. When Jesus says today you'll be with me in paradise, that's the heaven right now. And there's actually an interesting verse, and I'm getting to your question no, yeah, of yeah. what it's like. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses one, uh, 2 through 4, Paul talks about a vision he has. But it's really like, even in the text, a vision or an experience. It says, I know a man in Christ, and he's talking about himself, but he says a man in Christ because he's trying to be humble. Okay. Just to give a quick context, there's more going on there, but Paul's talking about himself. Mm -hmm. And he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. And he says third heaven because Jewish, the Hebrew people, God's covenant people, they always thought of heaven like this. There is the first heaven, which is just the sky above us, clouds. There's the second heaven, which is space, the star, moon, and skies. And the third heaven is where God dwells and all the redeemed who die. Does that make sense? So, so Paul, basically, the first and second heaven really weren't heavens. They were just the sky and the, and the, sky and space and the and third space, heaven yeah. is what we call heaven. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. So Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. And then he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So Paul's like, it was... It was so incredible, whether I was in my body or out of it, I don't know. And then he says, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. 
that same word Jesus used, talking to the thief on the cross of where he would be today with Jesus. Then he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Like, this paradise is so great. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't even know. I just know it was paradise. It was amazing. And then he also says, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He says, in this paradise, I heard things so amazing, so great, so glorious, I can't even express it to y'all. I literally can't put it into it. It's beyond. It's too great. It's too phenomenal. But he does say he heard things and we hear things with ears, right? In Revelation chapter uh, 6, um, the apostle John has a vision of heaven and he sees believers in heaven, specifically people who had been martyred, who had been killed for the faith. And he does see them in like body-like form mm. they were in the paradise there was no more sin suffering sickness or sorrow and these believers had self-awareness and they even had their memory and they were mindful of the distinction between heaven and earth and they had body-like form but they weren't in their eternal glorified bodies yet they were even given robes to wear clean robes to wear and they were told to rest um, for a little while i can read it to you because it's interesting. It's like he's seen something, and it, I think it's the closest thing to what actually is going on or answering. Like, is it just our souls? Is it a body? So he says this in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. He says, I saw under the altar, this is the altar in heaven, the souls of those who had been slain for, for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out, they cried out with a loud voice. So they have a voice, which means, you know, do they have vocal cords? O sovereign Lord, holy and true. So they're speaking to God. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Remember, they were killed for Christ. How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they have some type of understanding of distinction between heaven where they were and earth. And then verse 11 in Revelation 6, it says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. So they were given robes. Robes you put on some type of body. So we can surmise mm what's going on there but what we do know is that they don't have their eternal resurrected glorified bodies yet but it appears like they're in some type of bodily form in communion with god with memory uh, with worship with interaction with others it's paradise so with that breakdown paul got a chance to whether through vision or who knows how, mm -hmm. got a chance to kind of experience what heaven's like. So when I hear Paul say um, to be with God is better than to be on earth, with the context of knowing that he's experienced what heaven's like, I understand his excitement to experience it because he got a taste of it. Mm -hmm. But for somebody like me, who's never had a vision like that, do you think as a Christian, I should also 
be just as excited for heaven as Paul sounded. Christians should be excited for heaven. Mm. Absolutely. For one, God is there. Our faith will become sight and we will be with Jesus. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm -hmm. We're excited to reunite with friends we haven't seen in six months. We're excited to see people we haven't seen since elementary school. How much more our Savior, whom we truly and personally know through the gospel, through his word, and by faith, and yet haven't physically seen yet. Peter says, you have not seen him, but you love him. We do. We love Christ. That's a chief mark of a Christian. And how excited and longing should we be to be with him? Yeah. And I think it's important to say too, man, that there's a foolish saying out there that says, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's one of the dumbest things ever. I think it's those that are most heavenly minded that do the most earthly good. Okay, I see, where you, I see how you spun it. The apostle Paul was heavenly minded and he did the greatest good in preaching the gospel and bringing the gospel to all these nations, writing letters inspired by the Holy Spirit that we still read to this day. Think about all the apostles. Think about all the prophets. Think about all the people who followed the Lord exemplary. Think about faithful pastors. Think about great people from church history, great women of God. It's Christians, man, that have that 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 led the way for the abolition of slavery. It's 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 Christians that brought about the education system. It's Christians that brought about hospitals and things like that. Really go into history, man. It's Christians that have done such great earthly good in this world. Why? It's because they have the hope of heaven and the God of heaven who has transformed them and who has brought about new life in their souls. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's heaven, right? And then it says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Mm. And now some people would think, oh, so I'm just supposed to think about heaven all day. I'm just supposed to this and that. Well, Paul tells us why. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. The old you, that's gone. You're a new creation. You've been born again. You've been made new in Christ and your citizenship is in heaven. And your true life is with Christ. It's in Christ. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But let's think about this. What does it practically look like? To set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. Well, Paul talks about that in the rest of the chapter. It doesn't look like becoming a monk. It, 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 it doesn't look like going in a cave and praying all day and just meditating on heaven. It actually looks like putting to death what is earthly in you, like sexual morality, like impurity, like evil passions, like evil desires, like covetousness, being jealous and wanting what other people have, like idolatry. That's what setting your mind on things that are above looks like. It looks like putting away anger, putting away wrath and malice, which means violence towards other people, putting away slander, talking evil and talking dirty and uh, 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 about other people, putting away obscene talk. 
putting away lying to each other, putting off your old self because you've been made new. And what it looks like to set your mind on heaven is to put on then and to live with, with a compassionate heart, with kindness, with humility, with meekness and patience, to bear with one another, to not complain against other people, but to forgive other people as God has forgiven you. To set your mind on things that are above looks like putting on love because love brings about perfect harmony on earth. What it looks like to set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, is to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to let his word dwell in you richly, to live with thankfulness in whatever you do on earth as you set your mind on things that are above, you do it in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But then Paul's not done. What does it look like to set your mind on things that are above and not on the earth? It looks like wives submitting to, loving, following, respecting their husbands. And it looks like husbands loving their wives as Christ has loved the church and not being harsh with their wives, but leading them as servants. It looks like children obeying their parents. It looks like fathers encouraging their children rather than discouraging their children. It looks like being a good employee who works wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. It looks like continuing steadfastly in prayer. It looks like giving your life for the sake of the gospel, being a part of a local church and reaching people for Christ so they can go to heaven as opposed to hell. It looks like walking in wisdom towards unbelievers. Why? So your speech can be gracious and so that they can come to know Christ. That's what Paul says setting your mind on things above looks like. It actually totally transforms how you live on earth. I think what I'm struggling with in the context of heaven, though, is knowing what, like, do, so I love it. So right now, Paul's basically saying, um, focus on things that are above. Focus on love. Um, focus on being, a, like, a high-functioning human, right? What I'm struggling with is when in heaven, will there still be that dynamic of wanting to do what's wrong and choosing to do what's right? Or when... No. No. So... No. so I've just said something that I maybe should explain. Yeah. Salvation is rescue, right? Mm -hmm. Rescue by death, by way of the wrath of God, because Jesus came and died, paid the wages of our sins, which is death by way of the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God. He bore the curse of the law. He bore our condemnation so that we can be saved rescued, redeemed, set free so that we can have eternal life, everlasting fellowship with God, and so that heaven can be our home, and ultimately we can be resurrected and brought into the new heavens and new earth, eternally citizens of God's kingdom. Salvation is freedom from the penalty of sin, but salvation is also freedom from the power of sin. So that progressively in this life, in the here and now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to turn away from sin. You are able to repent of sin. You are able to acknowledge when you sin, confess it, and turn from it. And progressively be freed from its power and live for Christ. But ultimately, salvation will be freedom from the presence of sin. Mm. And salvation 
will be freedom from the presence of sin when we die from these earthly bodies and our flesh that still can be tempted, our flesh that still is fallen and not yet glorified, not yet resurrected, not yet made new. Our hearts are made new. Spiritually, we're born again and made new. But Paul in Romans 6 and throughout the scriptures talks about our flesh still being fallen. But when we go to heaven, our souls are departed from these earthly bodies and we will be with Christ and we'll be glorified like Christ and we won't have any propensity to sin anymore. Any propensity to sickness, to suffering will be made new and in that resurrected glorified body, we'll never be tempted, sin, or anything. There won't just be sin around us, there won't be sin in us in heaven. We'll be glorified and have a resurrected existence like Jesus ultimately. But in heaven, there won't be sin around us nor in us. That's over once as Christians we physically die. Like, so if I'm married on earth, am I married in heaven? Well, Jesus specifically spoke to that and said that there will be no marriage in heaven between two humans because what is marriage fundamentally? Marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman for life before God. But the New Testament explains to us that marriage is actually a picture. It's a picture that shows and displays Christ and his church, the covenant union that's there, and the love that Jesus has for his church, and how we as his church love follow and submit to Christ. So marriage on this earth is a parable of permanence. It's a parable, it's a picture of that permanent, eternal marital union between Christ and his church, Christ and his people. So we will be a part of a marriage. It will just be the ultimate marriage. God the Father has secured a bride for his son in the redeemed people, and we will eternally be united to him. Interesting. So our earthly marriage is picture that eternal marriage between Christ and his church, Christ and his people. Interesting. So then it does make me wonder, like, is there even like, like just the other things that come with marriage, like sex, um, just a physical affection, that whole process. Well, there will be affection between all the redeemed and all the brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're a family of, if there's love, there's affection and it's practically shown, but the Bible doesn't give any indication that there will be the gift of sex because sex was given as a gift. Sex in and of itself is not evil. There can be sexual morality when the gift God has given of sex is taken outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Um, for life. But sex is a gift. God is a good gift. God has given on this earth for the context of marriage, for a man and a woman to enjoy, and for procreation. But But we're not sure if it'll be in heaven or not. The Bible gives no indication uh, for that, and there's really, how I read it, no reason for it. And Psalm 16, verse 10, says, in God's presence... There is pleasures yeah. forevermore. 
and complete joy. So we're not going to be lacking for pleasure. Right. Uh, we're not going to be what... lacking for joy. It's not going to be like, wow. So Psalm 16, verse 11, excuse me. It says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in heaven, we won't be lacking for pleasure or joy. So whatever we don't have there, we won't be like, man, I really miss that. It will be like, no, it was a good gift in the time that God had given for that time and for that time of our existence. But now we have complete joy and pleasures forevermore. And you, I'm sure you've seen that meme where it's like the um, like God's, it's like Jesus asking for the, the little teddy bear and he got the big teddy bear behind his back. And it's like, dang, I don't want to give up the little one. So I get what you're saying. I think the trust comes in, comes in with that. So then just a couple more questions. So then what about, um, like, you know, like uh, if, if like you lose a loved one and it's like, all right, I'm going to see my grandma in heaven. Is that like a biblical thing to say? Like if like you lost a, a loved one, is it? Can you say when I die, I'ma see them up there? Mm-hmm. I think absolutely. Okay. However, you will see them in glory in heaven in paradise. You will be with them in that new heavens and new earth in New Jerusalem that's ultimately coming. Mm-hmm. If and only if they were believers in Jesus Christ. Yeah. If they repented of their sins. And trusted in the Lord Jesus, if they received Christ and rested in his finished work on their behalf. If not, if they died in their sins, God is a righteous and just God. They must be punished for their sin, having rejected the Savior. So we will be reunited with our loved ones, and we will be with every single redeemed believer, even that the Bible talks about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, King David, they'll all be there too. And we'll be with them and meet them and know them forever, eternally. But certainly our loved ones. I look forward to that. Even with my dad, for sure. However, they must have been believers in Christ. And the joy of heaven, the ultimate joy of heaven, isn't necessarily reuniting with family members. It's being with Jesus. Reuniting with family members it's glorious. It's lovely. Trust me. I lost my dad less than a year ago. Yeah. I long to see him again, to be with him again. But that would be like you're going to the movies to see an excellent movie, and yet someone with you, all they can do is talk about the popcorn. It's like the popcorn's great, and it's a part of the experience, but ultimately we're here for the movie, mm-hmm. and that's what makes this experience beautiful. So it will be your reuniting and your collective experience in glory with Christ. No more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow. That will be the collective joy you guys actually have. What a savior we have. What a friend we have in Jesus. What forgiveness we know together. Son, daughter, cousin, best friend, whatever it is. What a savior, what a redeemer. What a friend we have. What joy we have in his kingdom now, in this fellowship of the redeemed. I guess it will be something like that. So then what about hell then, right? So then you're, so that if you don't accept Jesus um, as your personal savior, then you're going to hell, right? What about that? So like, for one, let's say I'm, you're like two years old. 
couldn't even figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it, do you go to hell? Yeah. So there's a really good book written by a pastor named John MacArthur. And the book is called Safe in the Arms of God. And it talks about babies who are aborted, babies who may not make it full term in the womb, babies who were born, stillborn, or babies who die, little kids who die. And his argument from Scripture is that they do go to heaven. They, they, mm. they do go to glory. Um, David, when his son died that he had as a result of an adulterous relationship, he, he in a prayer, says with confidence that I know I will go to him. He knew he would see him again. Um, in the Wait, book, who? King David. Um, talking about his son that died as a baby. Oh, um, when he was um, in Jonah. Yeah, yeah. When Jonah went to Nineveh to tell them to repent or judgment was coming, when God in the last chapter of Jonah, chapter four, he talks about his compassion even for this wicked city. And he says there are thousands of people there, speaking of children, who don't know their right hand from their left. And I believe what he's saying there is they don't, they're, they're not at a place to where they're able to comprehend sin and salvation and judgment and all these things. They're kids. They're babies. Um, there's places in Scripture that give us great confidence to say that babies and young ones, God has mercy and compassion. God understands yeah. their mental capacities and all those things. And he brings them to glory as his image bearers, his creatures that he's fearfully and wonderfully made. And they're safe in the arms of God. So then what about let's so then what about an adult who may just not have experienced like somebody to teach them about Jesus? What what happens to them? Yeah, so Romans chapter one teaches us that everyone believes in God. Um, the the problem is some people suppress the truth of his existence and give themselves to sin or foolish thinking. So everyone knows God exists. God has revealed himself in creation and left us without excuse. And people sadly suppress that truth with sin, with pride, with idolatry, with whatever. And then Romans 2 talks about people also know God exists because of their conscience. God has written his law on our hearts as his image bearers, as his creatures. And we know God exists because sometimes our conscience excuses us when we're in the right and accuses us when we're in the wrong. And we know there's a God who exists, who created us, who is great and glorious, who is the source of morality and who we're accountable to. And people know that. And people are without excuse before God. People have willfully sinned. Um, and rebelled against him and deserve his judgment. And that's why God has tasked the church to go and preach the gospel. Right. Uh, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's why Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Uh, because God wants the gospel to be preached to the world so that people can hear the truth, repent, and believe. And I don't think hypothetical scenarios of this person, and for some reason, people always say Africa. What about the person in Africa? It's like, why are you picking on Africa? Um, but, you know, what about that person in Africa who just never heard the gospel? I think that's a horrible scenario, and I don't even like to entertain it. What I'd rather just say is, why don't you go tell them? 
Why don't you go tell them the gospel? If you care about that person in that country or that continent or whatever so much, maybe God has put that on your heart. And maybe God is pulling you to go tell them the good news of the gospel. But oftentimes people ask that question just as a way to debunk Christianity altogether. Yeah. And so I don't like to entertain that hypothetical scenario. We have been called to go preach the gospel to the nations, and that's what we should do so that people hear the gospel, and by God's grace, they could repent and believe and be saved. That's how we need to think about the nations. It is interesting, though. I hear you, because at the same time, you could, like, I could talk about a hypothetical, but unless I've met that person who's like, yo, I've never heard of, like, the story of Jesus, it's hard to speak on that hypothetical from a real place if you know what i mean like i can only speak from my experience i have been exposed to it so i do have a choice of like accepting or not i've never ran into somebody who hasn't and if i did run into them i have the opportunity to expose them to it so it is, it is interesting so like i do see what you're saying there for sure well then okay so then what about so then like i've heard things like a uh, purgatory right where it's like um uh instead of going to heaven or hell you're going like this intermediate place or like purgatory where like you're not in heaven or hell you're kind of like just in the middle in the middle like what's up with that yeah so purgatory is not in the bible Mm. (laughs) wherever you've heard of it you've just heard someone talking about it they didn't give you chapter chapter and verse because purgatory is not in the bible purgatory is a roman catholic teaching that you go to some middle place and suffer and like work off the rest of your sins you're like pur- purified so you can maybe merit and earn your way Wait, work to heaven. off what do you mean work off exactly what do you mean purgatory its whole concept completely goes against the gospel the fact that jesus christ came to save sinners and jesus christ lived a perfect life fulfilling the law and the prophets the law of god um, has been given to each of us and we must Keep his law, obey God, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We must keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, precisely, exactly, and entirely. Or we're lawbreakers, and we all are. We're we're lawbreakers, and we're under the curse of the law. And the wages of sin is death, eternal death, and eternal punishment because we've sinned against an eternal God. But the good news of the gospel is that God in his love sent his Son in the power of the Spirit, born of a woman, born under the law. He was truly man, truly God. Jesus lived under the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law as the second Adam, as our representative. And then Jesus laid down his life on the cross and he died a death as a substitute and as a sacrifice for all those who would believe in him so that our sins aren't just swept under the rug, but they're actually paid for. They're actually atoned for. They're actually wiped clean by the blood of Christ. And then Jesus rose again on the third day. And the last thing he said on the cross was, it is finished, which means paid in full. It's a once for all sacrifice. Jesus Christ is an all sufficient savior. There's nothing else needed. He is enough and he's willing and able to save us to the uttermost. And his grace is sufficient. His mercy is more. Christ is an all sufficient savior. Purgatory says, no, 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 no. The cross wasn't enough. The resurrection wasn't enough. You got to go somewhere and suffer a little bit. 
You got to go somewhere, work off some judgment, work off some punishment. It's unbiblical. And work it off by against, suffering? Is that what the, is the idea is? That like, by suffering, you're working it off? It's not even worth going into the details because <laughs> it's unbiblical. And it goes against the cross. Christ paid it all. Yeah. Christ bore the wrath of God. Christ bore the judgment. Christ bore our condemnation. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We don't need to pay for our sins or purify or any way. That's unbiblical. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's the good news of the gospel. We receive Christ and we rest in his finished work. Right. So to simplify, if you believe in if you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. It, it, there's no uh, middle ground. No middle ground. No and if you don't believe, space. you're going to hell. Sheesh, sheesh, sheesh. Okay. So then, I know somebody whose entire reason why they're not a Christian is basically they can't buy into the fact that a God who's all loving would even send somebody to hell in the first place. What would you say to somebody who has that perspective? Yeah, I would say they need to grow in their knowledge of God. Or just for one, they need to know God, period. God is love, but God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is pure. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God is who he is. And you can't dissect or break apart his attributes, his perfections, his divine nature, his essence. He is one. He is. Mm. And you can't just say you're loving, so you shouldn't do this. First off, you're a creature. You can't tell God what he can and can't do. And I just think that person is completely neglecting the fact that God is all loving, but we are loveless in our sin. We don't love him as we ought, as creatures. God, in his love, has given us breath, has given us a heartbeat and a functioning brain and a soul in life itself. And we have rebelled against him. We've turned our backs against him. We sin against him. We blaspheme him. We're, we're indifferent to him in and of ourselves. And if someone killed your cousin, but they were a loving dad, you wouldn't say he's a good judge if he just let your cousin go. Like, that's just not even how you operate on this earth, let alone the courtroom of heaven. So I, I don't think that person is grasping in full who God is, nor the sinfulness of our sin and how our sin, no matter how big or small, there's not big or small sins because every sin is against an eternally holy, good, righteous, kind God and has eternal punishment and a wage attached to it that is eternal death because you've sinned against an eternal God. So I think that person has a bad or maybe ignorant view of God, a low view of sin, no sense of eternal justice, and hasn't really contemplated the gospel that God has made a way for sinners to be saved. Wow. When you put it like that, I do kind of see what you're saying, though, right? Like, because, yeah, like, if, you're, if, if Jesus had to die to replace the, the consequences of sin, that in itself validates the whole reason of, like, the, the, the importance of 
believing in Jesus in the first place. Because yeah. if you don't believe in him, there like Jesus dying was a big deal. Yeah, God, like is, God is not a God that just sweeps sin under the rug. Every single sin will be condemned. Mm. There is no non-justice in the universe eternally. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So every sin will be condemned either by Christ as substitute on the cross or by the sinner themselves in hell. That's well worded. I see what you're saying. I do see what you're saying. And there is a way for your sin to be covered in the blood of Jesus, separated from you as far as east is from the west. There is a way for your sin to be atoned for, to be appeased, to be satisfied, for the wrath of God to be completely satisfied when it comes to your sin. Jesus is called the Passover sacrificial lamb of God. Why? Because he's the sacrificial lamb that was slain, that bore our sins when he sacrificed himself on the cross so that as the wrath of God was poured out on him, it can, pour, it, it, it can pass over us. But if you don't got that blood covering you, that judgment has to fall on you. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Yeah. That God has what made a way for you to be redeemed from the penalty of sin, from bondage to sin and death. God has made a way for you to not be his enemy, but reconciled to him as his child and friend. God has made a way for you to be saved. See, people hear the word saved and they don't even know what it even means or think about what that word means. We are saved from something. Yeah. We are saved from judgment, saved from condemnation, saved from the wrath of God, and we're saved to God. We're saved unto him and for his glory and to be with him forever. So I think that person needs to consider the reality of their sin before a holy God and the goodness of God to give his only son that we might be saved, redeemed, forgiven, and reconciled to him. And that person needs to consider their own sin. Why are they thinking about other people who rejected Christ and rejecting Christ? Mm. Because that won't be an excuse when you stand before the court of heaven and say, I, 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 I can't believe you would be a loving God and send people to hell. That says nothing about your sin before that loving God. God's not, God, like, they have this concept that God is a loving God, but that doesn't compel them to love him and to not sin against him. Mm. But they want to hold God accountable to his love, but that love hasn't done anything for you. And you haven't even responded to God's love and giving his only son. So how is a creature trying to keep God accountable on the basis of, him being love, but not responding to that love with trusting him, believing in him, worshiping him. All you do is blaspheme and sin against him and distance yourself from him. So I just think that person needs the good news of the gospel. They just don't understand who God is. They don't understand the sinfulness and the seriousness of sin, and they don't understand the goodness of the gospel. Man. I do, and I do, and I love how you said that because I do think we like um, even just from our own lives, we all have an opportunity to experience the negative of sin and how it's impacted our own lives, and I think that in itself 
should let you know how serious sin is. You know what I mean? Like we've all experienced some type of negative reaction to somebody else's bad choices. And just that personal experience alone to then say that that doesn't have a consequence yeah. is a big thing to say without having some form of yep, punishment or whatever yeah. you want to say. So I think I think I could flip what that person would say. So this person would say, "I don't I reject God." Because I don't understand how a loving God could send sinners to hell. So for one, you rejecting God as a creature created by God, he sustains your every breath. He gives your heart a beat. He gives you life and has given you life and existence. You only exist because of him. Which is a blessing. So you rejecting him, just that's terrible. Two... You rejecting him on the basis of your understanding isn't sufficient. Because once again, God doesn't call us to understand everything. He calls us to trust him. And he's God. He's infinite. You're finite. You're not going to understand everything God does and who he is. Psalm 145 verse 3 says his greatness is unsearchable. So even approaching God thinking, I have to understand you. I have to be able to put you in a box before I can submit to you. Is like an is worse than an infant saying, Mom, I will not listen to you. I will not eat from you. I will not be your child unless I can fully understand you. Like it just doesn't make sense. And then you say, I don't understand how a loving God can send sinners. To hell but really we should be saying man i don't understand how rebellious sinners can stay on the course to hell when a loving god has provided a way of salvation in his very own son that's how we should be thinking about it how can sinners reject a loving god who has given graciously, mercifully, undeservedly a way of salvation through the death and resurrection of his son. That's what's hard to understand. That sinners would willfully reject a loving, merciful, gracious God who has given his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life that we have not lived, to die a death bearing the divine wrath and punishment and condemnation, rising again in victory as the Son of God, who in love, grace, and mercy receives and doesn't turn away any of those who trust in him, who gives rest and peace to all those who believe in him, we should be saying, it's crazy that sinners would still reject him. A hundred percent. And because what I'm also even realizing too, from what you're saying, is the fact that if we don't buy into what the truth is, is of knowing that through faith, we've, we're accepted into Christ, we're accepted as children of God through God's grace, right? If we don't buy into that, what are the other options? If, let's say, the other, let's, let's say in, theory, in theory, another option could be um, you're just punished for whatever you did. Everybody goes to hell. Totally. <laughs> and then if, if it was straight retribution, like you get what you earn, if we got what we deserve from God, we all be in We hell all right go to hell. So nobody wants that option. And then if the options, everybody goes to heaven, you'd have complaints there too. You'd be like, wait, so 
there's no consequence for, mm-hmm. for no action. Absolutely. <laughs> like, wait, like back to your cousin example, you killed my cousin and you just get to go scot free for that. Mm-hmm. So when you, I think it's easy to isolate like the the truth and and um, forget about what the alternatives would be if what is the truth is not like, yeah, like the truth. How are you? How are you even saying the words? How can a loving God? send sinners to hell well where do you get that he's a loving god from the bible where you should also learn that he's holy he's righteous he's just he's gracious he's merciful so we don't even deserve anything from him the fact that you're even able to voice that is grace and mercy from god also where do you get the concept of hell from well it's from the bible and it's also from the fact that we're sinners who rebelled against God, who deserved nothing from God but condemnation. So it's a person that's borrowing from the biblical worldview. You can't even say that sentence of complaint without thinking somewhat from the revelation of the Bible. 100%. And yet, they're not even thinking about it holistically. They're not thinking about who God is holistically and all of his attributes and perfections. And they're not thinking about the gospel. It's yeah. as if God didn't give us a gospel. It's as if he didn't give us the good news of salvation and peace with him through Jesus Christ. It, 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 it's as if God hasn't offered forgiveness. It's yeah. as if God hasn't offered salvation, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, and eternal life in Christ. They're ignoring all of that and just mad that sinners are getting what sinners deserve. Yeah. I think it's blasphemous, bro. I, I, I think it's blasphemous, I think it's ignorant, and I think it's just a way to say, I don't want to deal with God, and it's just an excuse. Yeah, no, yeah. Because yeah. the good news of the gospel is being completely ignored in that statement. So when reading the Bible, when hearing about Paul, and reading what Paul's writings, you hear a lot about him speaking on uh, the, the last days. And and at moments he speaks on how you don't know when the last days are going to be. And then sometimes when reading it, you almost get the perspective that they had the um, they believe that the last days might be any like Mm -hmm. any day from like from whenever they existed. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I'm just curious what your perspective is on like the question of are we in the last days? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you, like. When we when reading Revelation and all that, I'm I'm not there yet. I'm mm-hmm. not. I have an advanced level of like being able to dissect the whole, you know, like revelation of things. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, no, like if somebody were like, "Yo, Paul, you think we're in the last days?" Granted, we're always in the last days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would you say? Like, you think we're really close, or you think? Yeah. So the Bible is very clear that we do not know when the second coming of Christ will happen. And anyone who claims to know by way of predictions or calendars or anything like that, they're wrong. Uh, No one knows when Christ will return. And all the events that come with that will set off. No one knows that. That's very clear in Scripture. We're just called to be ready. Uh, But but, but we are in the last days um, ever since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Uh, When the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost and filled the apostles and filled the early church and is now sealed in every believer in Christ. 
with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and the establishment of the church, that's when the last day started. So the last day started 2,000 years ago after Jesus ascended and the Spirit came and the church was established. So this is some uh, long we, last days. We, we uh, see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the apostles and Peter are filled with the Spirit. There's 3,000 people there, and Peter preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith. Literally, he quotes scripture. This is the first thing Peter says. Um, he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And then he says in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So like what was happening? He says, and in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So the last days began. Started from Pentecost. When Yeah, on the day of Pentecost. When the spirit came, the new covenant is here. Christ has come, he's died, he's rose, he's ascended to heaven, and now we're in the new covenant where the gospel's being preached, and the people of God is the church of Christ, and we're preaching the gospel. Christ is building his church. People are being saved. We're reaching the nations for the gospel, and Christ will return. So do you think it's even worth, like, um, kind of, like, trying to figure it out? Like, because you hear people, you know, saying, well... And granted, I'm like I said, I'm not there. But you hear people saying Revelation talked about rumors of wars and wars, and Revelation talked about this and that. And if you look at today's day, you can kind of see that there's rumors of wars, and you kind of mm -hmm. see. Is it even worth like using your brain to kind of like try to figure that out? I don't think so. So every generation of Christians pretty much thought this is it. There's no way we should be, or there's no way it's going to get worse than this. Yeah, and even. The apostles, I mean, like in some of their writings, they're like, this is, they're, like, there's, 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 there's an intensity and urgency in the New Testament in light of the second coming, the return of Christ. And the apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy being his last letter, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, and he goes to list on just all of these things. And we see that today. Just the wickedness of people. Um, there's been war and all these things. So, yeah, those things are happening. And Christ and all the events and realities of his second coming will happen when God has ordained it to happen. Got it. We are called to be ready. But and then we are called to be ambassadors for his kingdom, to preach the gospel, to live for Jesus, to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, we're called to be faithful. So then, what about the um, the Antichrist? Granted, like um, like I I do like kind of like buy into what you're saying of just this. You shouldn't try to figure it out. I'm just a little confused. What it is, who or who will be the Antichrist? Like mm -hmm. like um, is it like um, somebody who looks like Jesus but isn't Jesus? Mm -hmm. Is it somebody who's like clearly on demon time? Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing. Uh, with that is 1 John 4 talks about how we need to test ministers, people who say they're prophets or preachers or things like that. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses 
Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Mm. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now so, is in the world already. So the spirit of the Antichrist, um, in the place of Christ, rejecting Christ, just an enemy of Christ, is anyone who claims themselves to be a prophet of God, but they diss Jesus. Oh. Anyone who says uh, that Christ ain't the way, the truth, and the life, that Christ wasn't the Son of God, that Christ wasn't the Son of God who came in the flesh, the Bible says they got the spirit of Antichrist. Um, so that's one interesting well, verse. Well, I mean, that's an easy way to that identify, though. So basically... Need, that uh, people need to take seriously. However, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it does speak of in the time before Christ's coming... Uh, there will arise a specific person, uh, the Antichrist, or in Second Thessalonians 2, he's called the man of lawlessness. Um, so it says in Second Thessalonians 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And the day of the Lord is a time of great tribulation in the future. So Paul's telling them, don't be alarmed. I thought that, that, that uh, that's already come. And then he says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And that's what Revelation also talks about. It's the Antichrist. So there will be a man of lawlessness who sets himself to be God, who sets himself to be the Messiah, essentially, but, who says he should be worshipped. So there is a specific person that will come and that will happen sometime before the actual return of Jesus, where Jesus will reign as king and Jesus will set all things right. But the Antichrist, this person, um, will not be somebody who claims that Jesus is Jesus. It will be somebody that is like entirely on another page. He will set himself up to be God. Better than Jesus. Forget Jesus. Forget every okay. other God. Forget every other religion. I am him. I am it. That's what Second Thessalonians 2 yeah. um, tells us. Um, uh, well, I mean, then that, I guess it's, e it's easy to identify, you know, because you got everybody, like, questioning, like, mm -hmm. different pastors, questioning all these different people. And it sounds like if your pastor's saying Jesus is Jesus, granted, he may, you know, be misled in different, different areas, but he's not the Antichrist, at least. Mm -hmm. so, all right, well, then, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think people toss that around a lot. Yeah. I think the church needs to do better or give more effort with, with more humility uh, to discussing eschatology, the, the theology of the end times. So, like, we hear about angels all the time. We hear about, um, like, I don't know if Gabriel's an angel that's referenced in the Bible. We hear about mm -hmm. angels. Um, are, how do angels in heaven, like, and the, and the conversation of heaven, like, come together? Yeah, so... We only know what Scripture reveals, and that's all we need to focus on as well. Uh, we know from Isaiah 6 that angels worship God. 
Uh, there's angels around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So angels are in heaven worshiping the Lord. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says angels are, minist are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So angels are those who are servants of God, ministers of God, who help the people of God in some way, shape, or form, however God tells them to. They're obedient spirits um, who serve the Lord and who serve God's people. And angels were sent to speak to Mary, to speak to Joseph. Um, angels were there at the tomb uh, where Jesus rose again, and they spoke with Mary Magdalene and the women. Uh, so angels are spirits, uh, creatures, who serve God and, and they're different than us like, they're, they like worship. they're different than like what we are today and what we will be like angels and us are separate entities yeah there's some type of distinction between angels and human beings yeah human beings are image bearers of God there's nowhere in the Bible where where angels are called that uh, you know we're just dealing with implications here yeah um, and in first Peter there's actually a really interesting verse uh, Peter says concerning our salvation the prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully so this is Old Testament prophets they were inquiring what person or time the spirit in, of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories so the Old Testament prophets were writing these things, but they were in awe, and they were like, man, what is this going to be like? What is this going to look like? Mm. But then it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. But then he says, things into which angels long to look. Mm. So angels... Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12, they long to look into the gospel and the beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. There's something experientially that we as humans have with receiving and believing the gospel and just the wonder of the gospel. Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, becoming flesh, and he's the God-man. Peter says angels long to look into it. And that's all he says. That's all he says. So that's as far as we can go. <laughs> but that's just an interesting that verse. That is crazy. Like, actually. whoa. Like, that is crazy. Angels is are crazy. so in awe of the gospel that they long to look into it. Like, that's wild. It's just like, wow. Like, that's just cool. And um, Psalm 8 is another place where angels are mentioned. Um, David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. So he's talking about humans. But he says that God's made us a little lower than the angels. 
So just whatever that means. Granted, I mean, this is like a, a whole other discussion, but just just a quick question. So you hear that Satan was a fallen angel. Is that like biblically backed? Like, cause I, I don't know if I've ever really read that in the Bible as like a clear story. Like mm -hmm. this is, you know what I mean? And I, and I, and I believe I read the Bible through and through, mm -hmm. but is that something that like, is that like a biblical story that Satan was like a fallen angel? And in Matthew 25 verse 41, uh, Jesus is speaking of when he will judge unbelievers who have rejected him. And he says of himself, then he, the son of man, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Mm. So the devil, as a created being, heavenly angel of some sort, rebelled with demons and the eternal fire is in some way originally planned and made for them. Oh, wow. Uh, but that's there's some passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah that speak of the fall of Satan. But so, but it is a backstory, like the whole mm -hmm. like um, one third of the angels go, mm -hmm. went down. Okay, good. And good. Jesus also in I think it's Luke chapter ten. Seventy-two of his disciples returned to him after Jesus sent them out for ministry. It says. In Luke 10, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Mm. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. Okay. So, so that just that settles it right there. So then, all right. So then, it's, and if somebody wants to get in heaven, the only criteria is just believing, essentially. It's by faith in Christ in response to the gospel, repenting of your sins, and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And repentance is a change of mind. You you renounce thinking that your religious resume can earn you a place in heaven. You turn from the sin that made your salvation necessary and you turn to Jesus yeah. in simple faith that receives him, that trusts in him with an empty hand and rest in his perfect life, his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross for you, his victorious resurrection, his ascension, his being Savior and King and Redeemer, we look to and trust in Jesus for the salvation of our souls and for the home of heaven. Heaven is a gift of grace, and that grace is found in Jesus Christ. 100%. Man, this helped me, and I'm sure it'll help other people too. Thank Amen. you. Grace and peace. Let's move.